Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome on, listeners, to this free preview of Dunked on Prime. We're going to be running these all week here, and I hope you will consider subscribing because you can get five or six ad-free podcasts per week with Dunked on Prime. Link to do that is in the description. All right, continuing our week of awesome guests uh, with Danny LaRue in Columbia, but it's a chance for us to spread our wings and get some new perspectives on the show. And really pleased to welcome on Ryan McDonough, former GM of the Phoenix Suns. Tell people what you're up to now, uh, Ryan, in terms of your media stuff uh, before we get started here. Yeah, Nate, always great to be on with you. Doing a bunch of different broadcast gigs. Uh, The main one is with Odyssey. It used to be called Intercom. Uh, Now I'm an Odyssey NBA inside with Brian Scalabrini and a few other folks. So do different interviews around the country. Uh, also do some work with NBA TV, especially around the big events. Last year did the, the trade deadline uh, and free agency live for NBA TV. And I'll probably do some more work with NBA TV this year. Um, and then locally in New England, uh, I do some work for this with the Celtics on NBC Sports Boston. And then also uh, do some teaching with Sports Business Classroom, which you're involved with. I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. Uh, so on the basketball front, I do that. On the business front, I have some different things going on. But uh, trying to stay busy after being in front offices for 15 years, uh, trying to stay, you know, busy and engaged in a different way. Yeah. But also maybe slightly saner <laughs> than your schedule. Yeah, used to yeah exactly. Yeah. I have a lot more schedule control than I did uh, the 10 plus years with the Boston Celtics and then five plus as a GM of the Phoenix Suns in particular. Um, you don't control the schedule. The schedule controls you. So for any young men or women who are listening uh, to your show who may want to get into a front office or work in sports, um, just know the commitment upfront know, know that that's what it takes that you have to be willing uh, to work nights weekends holidays be available 365 days a year uh, and, and certain people are Nate obviously and others are, are, are not or um, you know I, I should say some are able to do that and willing to do that at different times in their life and uh, maybe at other times it's not as appealing to them um, but it is it is an all-encompassing thing and that's why guys like you and I uh, love the game we love watching the game and talking about the game because uh, as you know basketball never stops and now um, with all the you know, off-season movement and things that uh, summer league that really have made it a year-round thing. Uh, it's great for guys like us because we love hoop and uh, we never want to take a break. But uh, you know, for some people, it can be a little bit taxing uh, having the year year-long grind that the NBA has become. Well, it, you're gonna have to speak for yourself on that one because I I need my two months off dur- during the summer, uh, <laughs> and uh, I only only got one and a half this year. I'm looking forward to the the full the full time between uh, mid July and you know at least for me I, October first where I'm doing two episodes a week. But yeah, so. It, you mentioned the schedule and we're now about 20 games in for most teams that magical December 15th 
date is coming up shortly where a lot of guys who signed in the offseason will now be tradable. What is the team looking at at this point in the season to try to figure out where you are, what your plan might be as you get into trading season? What's that process like to evaluate your team at this point in time, figure out what's real about your performance so far? What is yeah, Great question, Nate. This may be the busiest time of year on an NBA calendar for a front office. And the reason I say that is because you have everything going on simultaneously. As you mentioned, we're about a quarter of the way through the NBA season. Uh, most of the players who sign contracts this summer as free agents are eligible to be traded in about two weeks on December 15th. So that's the main trade window in the NBA, as, as your listeners know, from December 15th until uh, the trade deadline, which is, uh, I believe, the second week in February this year, back on the normal schedule. Um, so you have that. That's your top priority, uh, your current team. And, and each team is different. I think if you're in the front office of the Golden State Warriors or the Phoenix Suns, uh, Milwaukee Bucks, Brooklyn Nets, it's how do we maximize our chances at competing for and hopefully winning a championship? Uh, if you're uh, you know, toward the bottom of the standings, say with the Houston Rockets, Orlando Magic, one of those teams, it's uh, are we willing to continue uh, to go with this rebuild and trade any veteran players or um, you know trade players today for picks and assets down the road? Um, so those are the you know main challenges. Uh, but also, in addition to that, Nate, you're, you're watching college basketball, you're watching European basketball, and, and really basketball all over the world now as the game becomes more and more global and, and prospects come into the NBA uh, from outside of Europe. It used to be primarily from Europe. Uh, now you have players coming from Australia and New Zealand and in other places around the world. Uh, you have the G League uh, going on right now. Um, you know, so you really have a lot of different things to balance in way. And uh, but again, your, your, your short term priority is the, your NBA team. Uh, and then some of the stuff, if you had to prioritize, you had to put something on the back burner a little bit. I think at this time of year, that would be a little more of the scouting stuff because the draft is in late June. And, and really, you know, your goal over the next two months before the trade deadline is to make sure your team is in the best position after the deadline hits, regardless of what your objective maybe well so let's play this game a, a, a little bit here with some of these teams especially in the west you've got a lot of teams that had pretty high expectations clustered a, a, around 500 or so and so it, we can kind of just maybe go through this process together with with some of these teams of just you know all right what are these guys right now and, and what what if anything would they be looking to fix i mean obviously you're limited and you know certain teams with draft picks and assets that you have and all that to upgrade but as far as just, I mean, the number one thing is you just got to identify the problem right? for, for some of these teams, or maybe even say, hey, the problem is health and we're going to be fine. So let's start with the LA Lakers. They are obviously 11 and 11. LeBron's missed about half the year. How are you feeling about these guys? Is it just, all right, they get everyone back and they, they should be good? Or do they have some issues that they're going to need to address between now and the trade deadline? I think they have some pretty significant issues, Nate. Um, and I don't like doing this, but I really changed my opinion on the LA Lakers in the preseason. Uh, before the season started, say in August, when you and I were in Las Vegas together for summer league and, and rosters are relatively set coming out of free agency, uh, I thought it was going to be the LA Lakers and Brooklyn Nets uh, playing for the 2022 NBA championship. Uh, Brooklyn's obviously had some other issues, which I imagine we 
we'll get into later on, uh, starting with Kyrie's vaccine hesitancy. Uh, but as I look at the Lakers specifically, Nate, watching them in the preseason, uh, all the concerns that um, I had, which I, I guess weren't significant enough if I had them going to the finals before preseason, um, they really came to bear and through the first 22 games of this season, um, especially uh, you know on, on the defensive end, I don't like the way they close out. Uh, I think their roster is unbalanced and really lacks a lot of shooting. Uh, they have a couple traditional centers who are aging. Uh, so I'm not going to pile on the LA Lakers, but uh, I have some pretty significant concerns about the team that go well beyond LeBron James and Anthony Davis, who's off to a horrific start to the year shooting the basketball. Um, I, I just think, Nate, if I were to list the three, four, five best teams in the Western Conference, I would not get to the LA Lakers. Uh, I'd hit Golden State and Phoenix for sure. Ahead of them, probably Utah, maybe a few others. Um, so that's the predicament the Lakers are in. And, and looking at their roster and the contracts being as top heavy as they are financially uh, with LeBron, AD, and Westbrook making so much money, uh, I don't see how there's an easy solution in terms of a trade that will solve all the Lakers' problems. No, I, I think that you make a lot of great points there. And for me, I mean, this is a team that's bottom 10 in both offense and defense right now. And part of the reason that they made the Westbrook deal was that they were supposed to be competent without LeBron, and they've, they've struggled to do that. They've also had one of the easiest, if not the easiest schedules in the league, very home heavy, a lot of bad teams. That's typically the case for some of the, the national teams because they want to uh, plug all their marquee games into more Eastern time zone and also uh, against better teams late in the year when uh, you know football is over and, and you can get more of these marquee games on Thursdays and Saturdays. Um, so they, they have a tough schedule coming up here. And I'll echo all of your concerns about their roster and, and their perimeter defense in particular. And, you know, I I was, like you, I had them as having uh, like second best regular season record in the West. And I thought they would represent the West in the finals. And while they have a lot of these other roster construction issues, um, I to me, the number one thing is just that LeBron and AD haven't looked like two top five players in the NBA. That's what they were in 2020 when they won it. And it, it, AD wasn't that good last year either, uh, although they still were going really well because of their defense. So yeah, I mean, that's that's a problem to me. I mean, what do you think of what you've seen from LeBron so far this year? I mean, obviously it's tough to make a definitive pronouncement since he's been injured, but you know, what do you think his chances are of being able to get back to that top five player type of level that they're going to need if they're going to make serious noise in the playoff? You make some excellent points. And my concerns are, I, I think, similar to your concerns. They're multifold where it's not just the roster construction. It's not just the lack of tradable contracts. It's that LeBron and AD individually haven't looked up to their usual Hall of Fame standards. And I, I bring that up because I think the roster exacerbates that, Nate. And, and yeah. so that was one of the reasons that at the time uh, I was adamant about uh, Buddy Heel being a much better fit for the LA Lakers than Russell Westbrook. And, and look at what um, you know the guys who went out have helped Washington do. They've been one of the surprise teams in the league this year. Uh, the Wizards, uh, you know, Heald has, has played fine. The Kings are underachieving as they tend to do. Um, but you know, just in terms of the fit and thinking as an executive uh, playoff basketball, which if you're, you're the GM of the Lakers, really that's all you should be thinking about. The regular season is whatever it is, but it, it's how do we win championships? That's how you're measured uh, when you're the GM of the LA Lakers, especially when you have two future Hall of Famers uh, in LeBron and AD 
uh, seemingly in their prime and a bunch of other Hall of Famers uh, up and down the roster. So um, I bring it up because, you know, I'm just in my mind, Nate, when, when I closed my eyes and tried to envision it, when they were making the Westbrook trade, I said, well, if they get into the playoffs, when the game slows down and is played more possession by possession in, in the half court, which it tends to be, one of the defenders, uh, Westbrook's defender, is going to be sitting in the lap of Anthony Davis or LeBron James and just daring Westbrook to shoot. They'll just let him shoot as many shots as he wants to shoot from the perimeter. He won't get the transition opportunities. Uh, so, so I bring it up again, not to pile on the Lakers, Nate. I just think Westbrook's a bad fit. I think where he's been as his, his best, especially recently after Kevin Durant left Oklahoma City, is when the game is wide open, played up and down in transition, uh, and, and he can you know use his incredible athleticism to get to the basket in the rim. Um, that's not how a team should play, in my opinion, with LeBron James approaching his late 30s. LeBron doesn't want to run like that. I don't think it's, it's prudent for him, you know, with as many miles as he has on his odometer to get up, get up and down the court like that. So that, that's why the issues are, yes, they're LeBron and AD, but they're also how the pieces fit together. And, um, you know, as far as making a trade with the, the, the lack of assets the Lakers have, keep in mind, they still owe assets to uh, New Orleans from the Anthony Davis trade. Uh, I just don't see how they, um, you know, fix this unless they're able to incrementally add some shooting. Uh, they'll get Trevor Ariza back. Uh, Wayne Ellington's missed some time. Maybe those guys help a little bit, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be uh, out in Vegas putting a lot of money on the LA Lakers to win the championship based on what I've seen through the first quarter of the season. Yeah, you know, I think with LeBron back, you know, they can maybe play at sort of a high 40s to 50s win pace uh, the rest of the year with this group. Like, I, I wouldn't say that that's impossible. They've obviously they've a quarter of the season in now, and they're still at 500. And you mentioned the trade possibilities. So they've got West Westbrook, James, and AD, I think we'll assume that none of those guys are going anywhere. Then you've got Horton Tucker making 9.5, Kendrick Nunn making 5, and then everyone else is on a minimum, uh, and they, they do have 15 players on the roster. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is tough for them to make a move. They can also trade either their 27 or 28 draft pick, everything before that, because of that weird deferred pick to New Orleans, uh, they wouldn't be able to move due to the, the Stepien rule. So, is do you think that there is a player well first let's say this is there like if they were going to just there's a type of player one player a starter level a guy that they might be able to get uh what type of player do they need the most like what what sort of a player would you be looking for if you were Rob Blink? a knockdown shooter and, yeah. and and they're not going to be able to get to Buddy Heald's salary slot and I'm not sure Buddy is the perfect fit I, I just thought he was yeah. a better option uh than Westbrook Buddy you know Heald making uh, right around 20 million dollars which is half of what Westbrook makes um but but to your point, Nate, and I think this is important. I, I know most of your listeners know this, but um, with, with these in-season trades, especially when you have uh, disjointed salaries, where as you mentioned, they have three guys: Westbrook, LeBron, and AD making north of thirty-five million. Uh, then Taylor Horton Tucker and Kendrick Nunn uh, making nine and a half, five million, and then a bunch of minimums. Um, what a lot of people don't realize or talk about enough, in my opinion, as a former executive, is roster spots factoring into these in-season trades, right? Yeah. So people say, "Why don't you just stack a bunch of contracts together?" Well, right. in the off-season, that's relatively easy to do when you when, when you can have up to 20 contracts and we're putting uh two ways in a different category right. um but in, in season you're, you're you're limited to that 15 you can't go above 15 um so even in terms of stacking minimums together it becomes really difficult for them to maneuver 
and, and then so you look at uh, likely to make a significant trade, uh, Nate, I, I'd be interested to get your take on this, but it seems to me like Talon Horton Tucker would have to be in it. Well, he's their one, uh, you know, kind of young guy that um, was injured to start the year and uh, has played all right. He's, he's had some issues um, when he has competed, but uh, I, I bring it up because, well, shoot, that's kind of the future too. So, so do you continue to double down on the present and, and without other young players and draft picks mortgage some of the future? Um, but looking at the numbers as an executive, I think in order to get into that, you know, double digit that, or excuse me, that uh, eight figure uh, double digit million salary range, 10 plus million, 10 to 20 million, Talon Horton Tucker has to be in it. Is that something the Lakers are willing to do? Uh, frankly, I, I think they may have to if they want to contend for a championship because I don't see another way to do it contractually. And uh, as you and I have discussed, I don't think the rest of this roster is good enough to win a championship, especially given the talent at the top of the Western Conference. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that they obviously really believe in Horton Tucker. They kind of had a little bit of an either or situation with their finances between he and Caruso. Caruso clearly is the more valuable player right now, but they felt like Horton Tucker could grow and, and maybe has a, a higher upside for this group. But yeah, so he would have to be in it. And, you know, let's say they wanted to pick up Eric Gordon, who I think of, of the players who realistically could be available, maybe not the greatest contract, but a guy who can shoot, but also actually like gives you some defense and switchability on the perimeter as well that I think they're they're sorely lacking. I mean, I agree with you on, on the shooting, but I also think their perimeter defense is really bad. I, I would be trying to prioritize, you know, a yeah. combo for it, like an upgrade on a Trevor Ariza type, but I don't know if that guy's available. So maybe Gordon would be the best, but they're, I'm sure they feel like, hey, we're not going to trade Horton Tucker, a young guy on a good contract for uh, a, a old guy on a bad contract in Gordon, even if Gordon might be a little bit better of a fit and he's also a health risk. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure that there's the guy out there who's really available, who's that combo forward type that can let LeBron play the three, guard the other team's best wing, uh, and also allow AD to play center. Because uh, I think their other problem too is, you know, Carmelo is having a nice year for what he is at this point, but it's pretty much impossible, I think, to have a good defense when you're playing Carmelo Anthony in your closing lineup. At the four, you know, he should be playing 15 minutes a game instead of 30 for them. So it's really... I. I'm not sure what they can do at this point. You know, even if you say they've got a first round pick and Taylor Horton Tucker that they could move, who would be available that really would help them? Did anyone come to mind for you? I think Eric Gordon's a really good name, uh, given how the Rockets have looked so far this year. They're non, uh, the recent uh, winning streak, the two game winning streak, notwithstanding. I imagine Eric Gordon would jog from Houston to LA to play for the Lakers to, to you know, to be on that team and compete for a championship. Uh, but you're right, Nate. He made a great point about the defense or, or lack of defense. Um, when we watch the top teams in the Western Conference, conference. Uh, Golden State is in the top two, I think, in offensive and defensive efficiency. They have number one defense. Uh, Phoenix is, I think, in the top five to seven uh, in both categories, offensively and defensively. Um, the, regardless of personnel, the way that those teams rotate, the way those teams close out, the way those teams veer back, I don't want to get too technical here, but it's no, just no, you a can, different you level. You can get technical. You can get technical on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast. We're, we are here We are here to nerd out, uh, uh, especially because you're going to plug SBC later. Go, go ahead and get it, get it technical as you want but yeah no I, I think the, the the veer back by the way for you want to just explain what that is for people who, who don't know since uh, since we are getting technical here yeah so so, so the veer back is kind of when when, you, when you're beat uh defensively kind of in, in, a, in a help position uh and, and you're trying to uh you know recover 
to a man uh, who maybe wasn't necessarily uh, your man, get back, get back to a help, uh, you know, to help off the ball and a guy who is now open on a switch or something like that. Um, so, so just it, what, what, the point I was trying to make, I probably got too deep in the weeds, but was the, uh, the effort defensively uh, from the Lakers needs to get a lot better and, and look at, um, you know, one of the ways I judge it, Nate, as a former executive now doing media uh, is when a guy, you know, has a, a catch and shoot situation and he's relatively open um, you know, on the offensive team, how do the defenders, in this case, the Lakers react? Do, do they sell out and sprint and do everything they can just to even, you know, maybe make the guy rush a little bit or make him take a side dribble or uncomfortable? Um, I bring it up because when I watch the Lakers play, um, a lot of the times, Nate, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but they just stop and quit, just sit there and stare at the guy. You know, well, it's like, well, a I guess shot. he's open now. We can't do anything about that, right? Like, yeah. No, I, exactly. I like, it's too late. It, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good we, thing to look at, I think, if, if you're trying to measure, to measure effort. So, yeah. I mean, we'll see. You know, I, I if, if LeBron and AD can get back to their 2020 form, I still think we're going to hear from these guys, even, even with some of the fit issues that we've talked about. And, and Westbrook is getting a little better after the start of the year. He's kind of, I think he's getting back to about the level he was in Washington last year, which was terrible for half the year and, and then good for the second half of the year. So he's kind of in between those two extremes, but he's, he's definitely one of the more inconsistent guys from night to night. But I, I, I think we may still hear from these guys. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, I think, you know, if we get into the crazy musical chairs in the seatings like we had last year, I still think teams are going to be like, now nah, we don't want to play those guys. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's just the brand at this point, but you're still, you're always, they're always going to be dangerous with the, the, the athleticism of LeBron and NAD, um, even if they're not in great form. Um, what are your thoughts, especially with your background? I think I'd be fascinated to hear from you. What do you think about the Ben Simmons situation at this point and kind of how that's been handled uh, and from the team side, you know, is there anything that you think they would or could be doing differently in the face of his trade request? And then, you know, what's your prediction? You know, we won't hold you to it because it's obviously it, it can take a number of twists and turns. But what's your prediction on how the Ben Simmons situation in uh, Philly ultimately resolves? Yeah, it's a really unfortunate situation. Um, you know, I, I think like anything of this magnitude, there are a lot of layers and levels to it. Um, going back, to, I know people want to go back to when they lost to the Hawks last year in the Eastern Conference semifinals, game seven, uh, Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid seemed to throw Simmons under the bus. I think some of it even predated that, some of the friction and tension, um, you know, from what I've heard between Simmons and Embiid over who's the face of the franchise, things like that, which, which are not that unusual, to be honest with you, especially for young ascendant stars in the league to want it to be uh, their team and, and to want to be uh, the man. Um, you know, I, I just think it, it's something the league has to really look at, Nate. I, you said I could get deep in the weeds uh, here sure. on Dunk Down, so I will. Um, here's my suggestion. And if it ever comes true, please give me credit. And if it doesn't, we can delete this part of the, uh, the, the pod and act like it never happened. My suggestion, Nate, would be, uh, and this would obviously have to be collectively bargained, but if a player signs a maximum contract and there'd be some negotiation about what maximum is, is it maximum dollars and years? But uh, I think um, there, there should be a rule where the player is not eligible to be, to be traded for a certain portion of time after that extension is signed. And what I mean by that is that would take, uh, because what's happening now, and this is a recent trend in the NBA, as you know, is uh, players are signing contracts. And even if they have a number of years left on their contract, they say, well, then now I have the money. Uh, the money's guaranteed. I'm happy. I want to trade today. I want it right now. You know, this is not, we're not talking about guys on expiring contracts or even guys with a year left on the contract, you know, approaching unrestricted free agency. This is this really at any time. So uh, I, I, this is probably biased, you know, more toward the team front office side, Nate, but I would love it where, okay, Ben Simmons, you just signed the max contract. That was a huge commitment uh, from the team to you in terms of dollars and years. 
It was also a big commitment to, to, from you to the Philadelphia 76ers because you're, you're basically signing away your prime. Um, you're just not eligible to be traded for the first half or 60% or 70%, whatever the number is in terms of percentage of the contract. That's what I would like to see, but um, but that's not the position we're in today. The position we're in today is is very uncomfortable. Uh, it seems like Ben Simmons and his, his agency clutch thought they could um, you know be distant and, and basically force the 76ers to trade him. Uh, the 76ers, I, I, I guess, to their credit from a bargaining standpoint, they've held firm. Uh, it may have hurt them, you know, over time from a leverage standpoint, because I think Simmons value is uh, continues to, to, to dwindle. Um, but so so it's really complicated. It's really nuanced. I, I have, you know, a lot of different feelings about it. Where I think it ends up, um, I, I think he's traded before the trade deadline this year. I know I might be in the minority there, but I think a team, I keep on going back to Portland uh, with the Trailblazers who are, you know, have always been good, not not great, but, but very good to pretty good. This year, they're average after 20 games. Um, you know, with CJ McCollum, Column plus not plus whatever Daryl Moy reportedly wanted, you know, a bunch of first round picks and pick swaps, but plus something smaller, plus Nasir Little, plus Anthony Simons, maybe a pick or a pick swap. Would that do it? Would that make sense for both teams? That's what I would be thinking about. I'd be looking at Simmons if I were in the front office for the LA Clippers or even the Dallas Mavericks. I think he'd be a dynamite secondary playmaker playing off of guys like Damian Lillard and Luka Doncic. Yeah, I, you know, I thought Portland is a, a potential natural fit as well. Uh, but, you know, it just seems Seems like Daryl is not interested in CJ McCollum as the centerpiece of a trade back. And I mean, now this could just be posturing, although it does fit in with everything that we know about his philosophy of just, hey, we're we're trying to win championships. We're trying to maximize our top end outcomes. It's all about getting superstars. I don't think he sees CJ McCollum as like your number two championship guy. And so, you know, they do have a bunch of other assets still. Simmons is the guy that they would probably need to trade uh, who could, in theory, be the centerpiece of such a deal they think that some player is going to come available according to reports and so you know maybe they just uh, hold on to it I'm I'm interested to see I mean the, the big thing to me was how they were going to start and I think when Embiid's been available they've looked pretty good so as long as they're doing okay like if you know if they're under 500 or something at the trade deadline then maybe there's a little bit more pressure to just not completely uh punt on the season but yeah I, I really have no idea how it, how it's going to play out um but back to your because you, you said a lot there back to your idea of of having a no trade period after signing a max contract they do have that uh, for listeners who don't remember of one year if you sign a designated player veteran extension so you're thinking something similar to that but for even longer of a time because basically by the time that kicks in even for the designated player veteran extension the guy uh you know once it's actually kicked in the guy can already be traded so you're thinking like two three years from when you sign it and also applies to like any max contract yeah i i think so and that may seem extreme to some, um, but to the the extent that um, you know, now from a, a team's perspective, uh, if a player says. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy, which obviously Ben Simmons has done this year. Uh, James Harden did it last year. Um, you know, you, you really don't have a ton of resources, uh, um, you know, or, or I guess alternatives other than to to trade the player eventually. I mean, I mean, I think, we, you know, wh- whether Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers say publicly they expect Ben Simmons to come back and play in a 76ers uniform, I don't think anybody outside of the organization thinks that's going to happen. Now, in fact, I'm not even sure those guys, Nate, think that's actually going to happen. That's what you have to say as a coach and GM to to, to maintain leverage. Um, so I, I just think, I mean, look, you, you know, with, with the new TV deal kicking in around 2024, 25, uh, if individual players are going to be making 60, $70 million a year, that's a huge financial commitment and, and good for the players. They've certainly earned it and helped grow the league. Uh, but also I, I, I think um, w- what I'm really worried about, to be honest with you, is 
a player signing a contract, Nate, and then as soon as he is eligible, say he signs a five-year deal, um, you know, as soon as he is eligible, say with four years left in the deal, he says, you know what? I don't like it here anymore. Not only do I want to be traded, I want to be traded to this specific team. I personally don't think that's good for the league. And uh, we're sitting here talking about Ben Simmons. Um, you know, he, he signed the uh, five-year max extension a couple of years ago. Um, he's got four years left. He's got this one plus three more years after this one uh, that ends in 2025, north of $40 million. So to the extent that, you know, he's not playing basketball, he's uh, seemingly, you know, around the team sometimes, not at other times. I don't think that's good for the league. I don't think Adam Silver and the folks at the league office think it's good for the league, nor do I think Michelle Roberts and the folks of the Players Association think it's good for the league. So I, I just think, look, if you're going to make a commitment at that level, it's like a marriage. And uh, if there were a rule that, um, you know, protected everybody. So, so it, let's say even the player underperforms and the team wants to get rid of Nate, which isn't the case here they can't do it either, right? So I, I just like, um, you know, tying uh, the, the groups together at a high level. Um, now, I, I think toward the end of the contract, it makes, makes some sense from one side or both sides to explore a trade. That's just good business. Uh, a guy either going into the last year of his deal or approaching unrestricted free agency. But I think toward the beginning of the guy contract, uh, locking some of the superstars in, um, but because I, one of the criticisms, I, I know you hear it as well, of the league is that uh, a certain percentage of teams, significant percentage who do not have a chance necessarily to win a championship that, that year, Nate, uh, then most of the discussion around that team just becomes, well, how do they get a superstar? And then sure. it becomes about the draft and trades. And it's not really about the product on the floor, which as an executive, I, I'd like to see most of the focus there, especially in season about NBA teams playing NBA basketball games rather than this kind of Twitter sideshow that uh, tends to exist in the NBA at times. Yeah, well, uh, but people aren't interested in the actual game. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, well, I, I mean, also, I think there, there's a discussion to be had that part of the problem is that there are too many games, right? I mean, there's there aren't, I, I think what, what I would like to see ultimately, this is a bit of an aside, we'll get back to Simmons because I, I do some points on that too but since you brought it up um there just aren't that many games we're going to see one um on tuesday the warriors and Suns. but i mean how many games regular season games even if you're a big fan of the league you like i just have to watch this game maybe christmas you know maybe martin luther king day maybe if there's some big game like the, like warrior Suns, but maybe there's 10 of those throughout the year that are like must see games and so i think if you reduce the schedule to where it's two games a week it's kind of more similar to like what soccer is in europe um you know you'd never get down to like nfl that you could keep the national tv deal but there would just be more interest in individual games right like i can do an entire week of podcasts without talking about specific games and because my listeners the most hardcore fans that you have aren't going to be like oh like i this game was so important that like you had to have talked about it right so that that's right. the thing that kind of makes i think if there were fewer games it would be easier to focus on the games because there would be this like national focus on individual games where it's like all right we know every basketball fan is watching this game tonight you make a great point and, and i was in the boston celtics front office coming out of the 2011 lockout yeah. uh, that was a 66 games uh, schedule that obviously started late i think uh at or right around christmas but um you know 66 games was interesting right because it, it is fewer it's obviously 16 yeah. fewer games in 82 well, well, so that and made... to be clear real quickly i i would say 58 games over the length of time that we currently have the 82 games so that i mean i think the ratings were great in that 66 game season but also they were really all the games were still kind of compressed. I'm thinking just like, all right, let's like let these games breathe a little bit, you know, where it's not just like, ah, there's another game tomorrow. It'll be fine, right? Like, so for both teams and players, you'll see teams play harder in those games. Fans, you know, they're not just like, all right, I'm not, I don't need to go to the game tonight because uh, there's another one tomorrow, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm thinking about spacing out a little bit more. I, I'm not sure if that was clear to you when I was saying that, but I wanted to make 
that caveat uh, comparing it to the 66 games. No, that's, that's a good point. And one of the, the thoughts I've had, especially as we talk about um, parity and, and balances of, of conferences, and um, we may get into that here in a minute, but finally, it seems like the East, uh, at least is the deeper conference this year, top to bottom for the first time and seemingly forever. Yeah. Um, but I bring it up because that was one of the points I made, um, you know, when I was GM of the Suns in particular in, in the meetings with Adam Silver and the folks from the league office is, um, you know, the schedule, uh, like when I was GM of the Suns, Nate, uh, and not for most of the last two decades, or if not all the last two decades, the West has been so much better than the East, not only the teams at the top, um, but but the depth, you know, top to bottom. Oh, yeah. um, Don't so, worry, like, I, I remember the uh, the 48 win 2014 season that oh, didn't, my gosh. didn't result in the playoffs. It's, uh, it, I'm glad, I'm glad I, somebody I know where you're going with that. <laughs> I'm, so, so, so the point was, it, it was, and look, I, I've been on both sides of it too, right? Because I actually worked for the Celtics twice as long as I worked for the Suns in the Eastern right. Conference. So, so we benefited from it in Boston, uh, suffered uh, by it, you know, some extent in Phoenix. Uh, but my point was, um, you know, especially with, with travel being better now with charter jets and all that, um, you know, do we do we need to play certain teams four times, right? Like, you know, twice no. in your own conference own division uh, and, and, and anybody in the other conference just twice. And I, I think if you were to shoot for, you know, an average of three or say two to three, Three times per opponent uh, that would let you know the the NBA and the, the national TV partners in particular kind of stack some of the games where you have some of the marquee teams playing. Maybe it's not just once home and road. Say it's you know LA Lakers and Brooklyn Nets or uh, whoever you know the best teams are. Um, you know maybe closer to average of three times. Uh, I think that would be good for the league as well. And I, I give Adam Silver a lot of credit. That's been one of the shifts I've noticed personally, Nate, since he took over for uh, the late David Stern, who obviously did a tremendous job. But Adam and the folks in the league office are very open to changes. Uh, I think we've seen that with with a lot of um, you know some of the rule changes, uh, but also the the play in tournament. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if those conversations do continue. About okay, I know what tradition is, and it's you know you play each team in your own uh, division four times, and the teams in your own conference three or four times, and the other conference twice. That's what's been done in the past. But I know Adam Silver and the folks of the league are at least open to discussing different things and to see if that's what makes the most sense going forward. You no, know, I I agree. So let's get back to Simmons here. Um, I think that he, and part of this is because I think they've mismanaged the situation from a PR standpoint. I'm probably more sympathetic to his situation than a lot of people because the Sixers tried and then were going to just trade the shit out of that guy. Like they, they absolutely offered him to, you know, for James Harden. That seems very clear. And then everybody and their brother was like, all right, he's, there's no way that the Sixers can bring him back after that game seven failure against the Hawks. I don't think people saw that he was going to be making the trade request like the Sixers were absolutely going to do everything that they could to move him it seemed like things had really run their course there and my the impression I I don't doubt that Simmons would rather play elsewhere but it kind of seemed like that was Rich Paul just trying to take more command of that process and so there is I think a little bit of a double standard and now all the focus has been on Simmons and he's not reporting and all this stuff and they also could have done a much better job of just getting him paid and you know doing this whole holdout thing where they thought he was still going to be able to get paid and he wasn't going to and then you know now all of the stuff that they're doing they've got no plausible deniability on it because they already held out um so it's harder for him to get paid now but this all started with the Sixers wanting to move Ben Simmons I think that's really and him feeling like he was no longer valued by the organization and I think that's really gotten lost in this discussion no that's a good point and um you know from a front office perspective that's always one of the challenges 
challenges internally is how much you communicate with players uh, who are going to be traded or in the case of Simmons may be traded. And when do you communicate with them? It, it seems, you know, reading reports some of the, some from some of the best reporters in the business that the 76ers told Ben Simmons last year in season, hey, we're close to a deal with Houston. Uh, you'd be going to Houston for James Harden. Simmons seemingly was okay with that, if not excited about it. That did not happen. Um, so, so at that point, Nate, once you have that conversation, that's, you know, one of the challenges, uh, one of the many challenges of being a, a GM in, in 2021 is, you know, how, then how do you walk it back? How do you get the genie back in the bottle and say, but you're a guy, we believe in you. But the player and his agent are looking at you said, but yeah, you just had me on the next plane to Houston. If the Rockets said yes for James Harden, I, I was gone, you know? So that's always the challenge. Um, you, you know, certain teams, I know uh, the Indiana Pacers led by Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan, uh, who I'm friendly with, they've been very open with their players that they're, they tell them, hey, you know, we, we're discussing trading you with, with other teams. Uh, I, I give them a lot of credit um, for doing that because it's not easy to do. Um, but but in the other teams, you know, view it the other way, like the, the players, um, they'll just be involved in the process at the very end when a deal's agreed upon, they will let the guy know then. Uh, so, so it's really, you know, differs team by team. And you see the pros and cons of it. On the one hand, the player and his agent, I think, uh, respects and like being involved in the process and knowing that, hey, the guy may be traded. Uh, on the other hand, if you do think you have a trade or tell a guy he's likely to be traded and then he's not, how do you repair that relationship? And uh, obviously with Simmons, you're, you're right. It, this did not start, uh, as I mentioned earlier, where after game seven against Atlanta, when, when, when Doc Rivers and Embiid had some critical comments to Simmons, it started probably even last winter uh, when Simmons was on the trade block and then not dealt to Houston for James Harden. So we got a few more things that I wanted to get to. Uh, but first, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Sports Business Classrooms, a new offering that you're going to be involved in at the end of the month. Yeah, thanks, Nate. I, I know you've worked with Sports Business Classroom, Albert Hall, uh, Larry Kuhn, Warren Legary, and those guys do a phenomenal job. We get together in Ve Las Vegas every summer during Summer League. We did it again this year. Every year, the students seem to get brighter. Over the last couple of years, uh, 38 students out of SBC uh, have gone on to get jobs in sports. Um, so what we're doing now is a uh, virtual experience called GM Academy. It's December 27th to uh, December 29th this year, the Monday through Wednesday after Christmas. And um, any of your listeners can go to sportsbusinessclassroom.com slash GM Academy. Uh, you can register now. And basically, we're going to take uh, whoever participates inside the front office for three days. And what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm running it. I'm leading it. Uh, we have a half dozen current executives. We have former and current head coaches lined up. We'll have media people, we'll have analytics people. Basically, what we're going to do, Nate, is take the students inside a front office if, and act like if you were in an NBA front office from December 27th to 29th, this is what it would look like in real time. Uh, you, you'll get to meet from some of the top people in the business. Uh, you get to hear, excuse me, from some of the top people in the business. Um, you, you know, you, you build your resume and then we'll, we'll let you do the job. We'll put you in a front office and have you make trades and grade you on the result. And uh, as you know, everything that SBC does is first class and their placement record as far as um, people getting jobs coming out of sports business classroom and their programs is second to none. Yeah, well, thanks uh, for that. I definitely encourage everyone to check it out, uh, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. All right. Well, so I had this huge outline. We, of course, uh, went out on some tangents. So I've, I've missed something, uh, but uh, I've missed a few of these here. But let's uh, let's talk about the Kyrie Irving situation in Brooklyn. Again, from a front office perspective, how would you uh, evaluate the choices that uh, Sean Marks and, and Josai have had to make uh, regarding this unprecedented situation? Yeah, I, th I think they've handled it the right way. I mean, I, I think, in fact, they could have been more punitive about it, saying, 
saying, look, you know, Kyrie, you're, you, you chose not to get vaccinated. So we're going to choose not to, to pay you, especially for the road games. Uh, they have not done that. Kyrie consen- continues to receive more than, than half his salary. Um, so it is an unfortunate situation. I'm not sure how Kyrie Irving thinks it's going to end. It seems like uh, there were some, um, you know, maybe misguided hopes that the uh, vaccine mandate would be lifted in the city of New York and that Kyrie would be able to be uh, to play uh, being unvaccinated. Unvac- uh, again, maybe I'm too much of a contrarian with things like this, Nate, but I'm, I'm in the minority. I, I think Kyrie will get a shot and, and play for the Brooklyn Nets at some point this season. Uh, I think he started to uh, open the door to that a crack when he said, look, uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. This is not what this is about. It's about people who have lost their jobs because of vaccine mandates. I'm, personally, I'm not sure I really understood the train of thought, but uh, that my interpretation as executive was that him that was him opening the door a crack to potentially return. Um, but the Nets you know, do have some issues. I mean, obviously it starts with Kyrie, but as we recorded the show today, uh, Joe Harris had ankle surgery. It looks like he'll be out a month or two. Um, and then, you know, James Harden is, is not played that well. He's not played like an MVP candidate. Uh, so yeah, Kyrie's the main one in Brooklyn. But uh, again, this is part of what makes being an executive so hard. There's no way when Sean Marks and Joe Sy and their group have done a tremendous job and built uh, what I thought was going to be a historically good team in Brooklyn. Um, when they signed Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving in the summer of 2019, I don't think there's any way that them or anybody could have envisioned uh, a worldwide pandemic and a vaccine mandate keeping one of their three best players out of the lineup for potentially the entire season. Well, it's interesting because I would actually say when they've been on the court, Kyrie and KD have been better than they ever could have hoped. I mean, Kyrie, when he's been out there, has been in awesome shape. I thought he had statistically one of, if not the best seasons of his career last year when he was available KD came back and looked as good as ever really the first guy to ever do that from an Achilles and yet they've had all all these other issues you know Harden had the hamstring that kept him out last year as well Kyrie sprained his ankle and then all this this year but uh you know let's say that Kyrie does not come back you know I've my best guess is you know I'm 45 percent chance based on no inside information that but that's you know that's just sort of my operating assumption right now uh but decent chance but maybe not more like likely than not uh, reasonable minds like you and me can differ on that but uh, what else do these guys need right now because it does seem like they are a little bit struggling to find an identity of how they want to play um particularly uh, on the defensive end of the floor so uh, they like the lakers uh, have some issues as far as uh, what they can trade um they could move a 2028 first rounder uh, at this point they've got a couple of young guys that teams might be interested in but you know not a ton of matching salary either but what would you be trying to acquire if you were Sean Marks and company right now? Well, that's the tough thing about it because I think at full strength, they're they're the best team in the league. I think by a pretty significant margin, they don't have to do anything. So the challenge is an executive and it's easy to fall into that trap is uh, you can do too much, right? You can make too many moves and um, you don't want, you certainly don't want to get into a place where you said, well, shoot, if we just would have waited until uh, Joe Harris got healthy and back in the lineup and then hopefully Kyrie gets the, the shot and Harden rounds into form and adjusts to the new rules, the way the game is being called without... Uh, the flails and the flops being rewarded, uh, then we, we would have been by far the best team. So uh, that's the challenge. Um, I think one of the things that they have to seriously look at, and it's interesting that uh, as you and I record the show today, that uh, Kemba Walker, uh, you know, you know, a veteran uh, who's been an all-star, just got benched by the uh, New York Nets. In fact, excuse me, New York Knicks. In fact, not only um, is he benched, he's seemingly not in the rotation. And he was not just starting. He's completely out of yeah. the Knicks rotation. Uh, so I, I bring it up because that's not easy to do with a veteran player. Um, but, you know, a, a young 
young guy like Nick Claxton, who I think has a lot of potential, has been um, you know shown flashes in the NBA. He's been in the G League some uh, for the Long Island Nets this year. Uh, is he better in terms of maybe not today, but uh, in May and June trying to win a championship? Is his development um, you know better than say Lamarcus Aldridge, who uh, has actually pl- played pretty well coming back out of uh, you know medically induced retirement, or a Blake Griffin or somebody uh, older along the front line? Um, I-, I don't know that. So, so I think those are the questions um, that they have. You know, guys like Claxton. Uh, Bruce Brown, who playing the small ball five, you, you know, played pretty well. I, I don't know if that's a perfect uh, fit in that role. I think a six five guy at center, but he was relatively effective there last year. Does does um, Steve Nash, who's you know obviously a Hall of Fame player, but relatively new to coaching, uh, does he have the courage and is he willing to just go there? He, he did it with DeAndre yeah. Jordan, um, you know, put him out of the rotation. Is he willing to go to to Griffin, to Aldridge, some of these veteran guys? Not just them in particular, but is he willing to play younger players over veteran players if that's what's best for the team? Because uh, as you know, Nate. There's the on-court aspect of coaching in the NBA, but there's also the locker room aspect. And, um, you know, I, I think some veteran coaches have been around uh, maybe like a Tom Thibodeau or more comfortable doing that uh, than a relatively new coach like Steve Nash uh, when it, it involves sending a guy who's going to the Hall of Fame someday to the bench and saying, hey, look, I know you played OK, but for the good of the team, you're not going to play anymore. Uh, that can be a difficult conversation. And, and you do have to think about how that will impact your locker room as well. No, I, th- those are all really good points. And, and I'm interested to see what it looks like with class. Claxton, he's had a number of issues, including now this mysterious non-COVID illness that's had him out for, I think, over a month at this point in time. And I think he, he's important potentially to their defense, although I don't, I just don't trust him going up against, say, the Bucks size. And also, I think they do desperately need Bruce Braun because they got Joe Harris out there. He's going to play. Harden, not really a stopper on the perimeter. KD, uh, you don't want him uh, shedding those guys, except maybe for like the last few minutes of the game. So I think they need Bruce Braun out there. They need someone who can guard, say, Chris Middleton. Like he was the only guy they had last year that could guard Chris Middleton reasonably well. Uh, But if you're going to play Bruce Braun, who doesn't shoot, then you also need more of a stretch option. So I think part of the reason their offense hasn't been as good as hoped is they always seem to have two non shooters on the floor. It's usually a, or at least two non three point shooters on the floor, whether it's Blake Griffin who's really struggled Aldridge is more of a mid-range guy and then they got to have Brown out there too or Javon Carter and I think it's telling that that their best groups last year were with Jeff Green at center they uh they let him go because he got a bigger deal with Denver and they got Patty Mills who also is really good I, I supported that move but they've got James Johnson now and he's got a plus 12 net rating uh, on the season and I think that's really interesting that I don't know that James Johnson is that guy as a shooter uh but if they could find someone else who kind of fits into that combo forward role but can stretch the floor basically be what Jeff Green was for them last year that would be my key priority again though there are not that many players of that ilk available right now no you're right and it's the second team uh, the second championship contending team or want to be contending team that we brought this up with right what you describe as far as what the LA Lakers need uh, is very similar to what the Brooklyn Nets need and that's why those uh, bigger wings are in demand and that's why even if he's not a great player has never been uh, close to the all-star game that's why a few years ago, Robert Covington fetches multiple first round picks, right? Just because those yeah. guys are hard to find. And uh, if you have a young, talented one, like a guy that um, we brought in my last year in Phoenix, Mikel Bridges, then uh, those guys aren't going anywhere. Those teams aren't trading those guys because those uh, you know long athletic wings who can shoot and defend are hard to find. Um, but but you're right. That, that, that kind of player would help Brooklyn. Uh, I thought Green, you know, played a nice role for them last year. Jeff Green, he outplayed his contract. Um, but, but really more than anything, Nate, I, I think we may be overcomplicating this. Um, 
the Nets, who, you know, I think the concerns were, uh, could they defend well enough? Well, they're seventh in defensive rating as we record the show after yeah. the first quarter of the season. Um, they had the best offense, not in the league, but in NBA history last year. Uh, and really, for me, the main differences are no Kyrie Irving and James Harden has been below average uh, for his Hall of Fame standards. Uh, if they had Kyrie and even a, a decent James Harden, we'd be talking about a team that's in the top uh, seven in offense and defense and uh, probably, you know, leading the Eastern Conference by a significant margin at the quarter point of the season. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, when you're not getting any production whatsoever from Kyrie, who they, I mean, they built this team to have three stars and to try and build around them. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, it makes it a lot more difficult. All right, well, Ryan, this was really awesome. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Don't forget to check out uh, Sports Business Classroom as well, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And we'll be back uh, with more awesome guests uh, this week. Uh, really appreciate them coming on. And we'll talk to you all soon. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.